Good to see everybody out this evening. As I had mentioned at the conclusion of this morning's lesson, lesson kind of went easy on you as far as the time. Well, I'm going to make up for that tonight. But don't worry, we'll be, we'll be done before Matt's done working. So. <laughs> it shouldn't be too bad. But we do have a lot of material that I want to cover, and kind of one of those lessons that to break it up into two lessons is kind of difficult, but to get everything into one is also kind of difficult, so we just do the best we can. We're going to talk about what happens at the end according to what God has revealed. The title of the lesson is Left Behind, What Will Happen at the End. Now, popular teaching, most denominational bodies hold to the idea that at the end of time, there's going to be this return of Jesus, which that all sounds probably familiar to most of us. It should. But their interpretation is that there's going to be some different things that happen from what maybe you've commonly heard about. You probably heard of the rapture. That's an idea that a lot of people hold to. It's this idea that there's going to be this vanishing of all the righteous off of the earth for a period of time, and they're going to be zapped away to be with Jesus. And there's going to be then this tumultuous uh, period on the earth, followed by uh, Jesus physically coming back to the earth, and he's going to, as they would teach, set up this earthly kingdom and reign on the earth for some thousand years or so. And then once all of those things have been concluded, it will finally be the end as we would typically think of it, and we will spend eternity in heaven or in hell. There's a chart here, as you can see, that kind of maps out this idea of dispensational premillennialism. That's the fancy term. You've probably heard premillennialism, that term used before, but that's what we're talking about. When you hear that, it's this idea that there's going to be this rapture, this part one of Jesus' return where all the righteous just vanish off of the earth and all the wicked are left behind. And then, as we said, this period of tribulation followed by the coming of Christ to reign on the earth from his throne in Jerusalem for some thousand years. And then, of course, like we said at the end of that period, all things finally come to a close and we go to heaven or hell for all eternity. Well, we're going to talk about this evening what the scriptures have to say about uh, the end of time, what's going to happen, what they have to say about these kinds of ideas. I see Jim looks like he's taking a picture of the slide here. I can send that to you later. Probably be a better quality image. So if, you, if you'd like that, let me know. But we're going to notice this evening that this idea of premillennialism, which again is very popular, it's good for us to study these things because a lot of people buy into this because of what they've been told. But we're going to see, based on the scriptures, how that this theory, this idea, this teaching is based on a number of false premises. So I would encourage you to have a Bible handy. There's a lot of scripture that we want to cover. Uh, some of it I might paraphrase for the sake of time. Uh, but we're going to try and get through everything that we have in our, our outline there. The first false premise of this teaching is that God's promises, they will say, some of them anyway, are unfulfilled. Well, which promises might we be talking about according to what they would teach? 
Well, the first promise that they say is not fulfilled yet and will be fulfilled when Jesus will literally return and set up this earthly kingdom. They'll say that the land promise that was originally given to the Israelites, originally to Abraham, that that is yet to be fulfilled. That the Jews kind of had it pretty close, but then obviously all those things happened. They were carried off into captivity, and, and so they really never fully realized the promise that was made to uh, the ancestor, really, of us all, and Abraham, in that promised land, the, the physical land itself. There's various places where that promise is recorded. One such place we might go to is in Genesis 12, verse 5 there. It says, Abram took Sarah, his wife, and Lot, his brother's son, and all their possessions that they'd gathered, and the people whom they had acquired in Haran, and they departed to go to the land of Canaan. And so they came to the land of Canaan, and Abram passed through the land to the place of Shechem, as far as the terebinth tree of Morah. And the Canaanites were in the land. We find in verse 7 that the Lord appeared to Abram and said, Your descendants, or to your descendants, I will give this land. And there he built an altar to the Lord who had appeared to him. Now, the problem with this presumption that the promise was unfulfilled is that it's not based upon what the scriptures would teach concerning the fulfillment of this promise. In Nehemiah chapter 9, notice what we read here. Verse 7 beginning. It says, You are the Lord God who chose Abram and brought him out of Ur of the Chaldeans and gave him the name Abraham. You found his heart faithful before you and made a covenant with him to give the land of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Jebusites, and the Girgashites to give it to his descendants. Notice what we find here. You have performed your words, Nehemiah said, for you are righteous. So according to the prophet, God did fulfill the promise to give them the land. And really when you read through the book of Joshua, that's what the book of Joshua is, is all about. The Israelites finally going in and receiving their inheritance that had been promised. And the largest, the borders of Israel ever grew were under the reign of Solomon. And all of the land that had been promised was conquered by Israel and realized by them. One kind of subset point that we might notice that again establishes this truth is by looking at the promises concerning the cities of refuge. And we had talked about this in a sermon in and of itself some time ago. And we're not going to dive into all the details of what the cities were. We don't have time for all that tonight. But in Deuteronomy 19, in verse 7, we read here, Therefore I command you, saying, You shall separate three cities for yourself. If the Lord your God enlarges your territory as he swore to your fathers and gives you the land which he promised to give your fathers, if you keep all these commandments and do them, which I command you today, to love the Lord your God and to walk in his ways always, then you shall add, notice, three more cities for yourself besides these three. So in total, there was to be six cities of refuge. And when six were appointed, that would be designation of the fact that the promise God made concerning this land of inheritance would be fulfilled. And so what do we find when we come into the book of Joshua there towards the end of the book, verse uh, 7 and 8 of chapter 20? We read that they appointed all six of these cities. They appointed Kadesh in Galilee, in the mountains of Naphtali. They appointed Shechem in the mountains of Ephraim, and Kerjoth Arba, which is Hebron, in the mountains of Judah. And then on the other side of the Jordan, by Jericho eastward, they assigned Bezer, in the wilderness of the plain, from the tribe of Reuben, Ramoth in Gilead, from the tribe of Gad, and Golan in Bashan, from the tribe of Manasseh. So all six cities were established as these cities of refuge, and again shows us that the promise was fulfilled. Now, the important thing to notice about this land promise was that it was conditional. This promise of this inheritance and this promised land was not going to just last until the end of time unless God's people were to 
keep the covenant that they had made with him. But we know, of course, that that didn't happen, that they broke that covenant. And that, of course, is why they were ultimately carried off into captivity and lost what they had gained. Now, we know it's conditional because of what we read in Joshua 23, verse 16. It says there, When you have transgressed the covenant of the Lord your God, which he commanded you, and have gone and served other gods, and bowed down to them, then notice the anger of the Lord will burn against you, and you shall perish quickly from the good land which he has given you. So, proponents of this premillennial theory, uh, they say, well, Jesus is going to come and finally realize that promise, right? Well, the promise was already realized, and it was forsaken by those it was promised to. They transgressed God's covenant, and as a result, as was foretold, they were taken from that land. Now, another promise that proponents of this teaching will say is unfulfilled is the kingdom promise. And they hold to the idea that Jesus was always intending to come and restore physically the glory of Israel, that the kingdom was to be what we would typically think of as a kingdom. Uh, a king on a physical throne with physical territory, with real physical power, these kinds of things that we've seen historically, and Israel, of course, would have fallen into that at one point in history. But they'll say that the kingdom, that promise is yet unfulfilled. Second Samuel chapter 7, here in verse 12, this is speaking here concerning David. It says, when your days are fulfilled and you rest with your fathers, I will set up your seed after you who will come from your body. I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name. And I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. Now, in some senses, the words that were spoken here pertained physically to the son of David, which was Solomon. He built a physical temple or house uh, for the worship and praise of God. But... As we find often with certain prophetic writings, they had both an immediate application and also a prophetic application in the sense of we see that this also would apply to Jesus Christ and the kingdom that he would establish and the throne that he would eventually take. In Luke chapter 1, verse 32, here speaking of Jesus, it says, He will be great and will be called the Son of the Highest. The Lord God will give him, notice this, the throne of his father David. Now, as we're going to see here, this throne, this power that Jesus would receive was not what everybody had in mind. It wasn't ever going to be, it was never intended to be a physical throne that Jesus would sit upon. But it goes on there, verse 33, He will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. So this here mirrors the wording that we had noticed there in 2 Samuel, shows us that these things were fulfilled by Christ. But as we're going to continue to notice that this kingdom was not to be of this world, and that's what so many have missed, even people today have missed. Now, notice in Revelation chapter 3, verse 21, this is after everything that had happened. Jesus had now ascended back to God. Uh, he'd been on the earth. He was crucified. He rose again. All these things have, have happened. And now we're at a point where the church is in existence. And Jesus is speaking to several of the churches. And here in Revelation 3, verse 21, notice Jesus speaking, says, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and dine with him, and he with me. To him who overcomes, I will grant to sit with me, notice, on my throne. Where is Jesus now? Where is he speaking these words from? He says, I'm on my throne. So at this point in history, Jesus says, I'm on the throne. I fulfilled these, prophets, uh, these prophetic words. As I also overcame and sat down with my father on his throne, he goes on to say. There's an interesting 
thing that we find in the book of Jeremiah that, that helps us show uh, further that this throne that Christ would inherit was not to be the physical throne in Israel, in Jerusalem. Jeremiah chapter 22. Jeremiah was the prophet unto Judah. Now the northern tribes had already been taken captive by Assyria. And as you read through the book of Jeremiah, we see how Judah likewise gets taken by the nation of Babylon. But Jeremiah is trying to warn Israel uh, what's left of them at this point throughout the book. We read there uh, throughout the book about his struggles to do that, even though they refuse, by and large, to listen. But he talks here about one of the last uh, Israelite kings, Jeconiah, or Kaniah, as he's sometimes referred to, as we see here in verse 28. Notice what's said about Kaniah, or Jeconiah. It says, Is this man... Kaniah, a despised, broken idol, a vessel in which is no pleasure. Why are they cast out, he and his descendants, and cast into a land which they do not know? He's talking about that captivity that's soon to come. Verse 29, O earth, hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord, Write this man down as childless, a man who shall not prosper in his days. And notice it says, None of his descendants shall prosper sitting on the throne of David. Now here it's talking about that physical throne in Jerusalem and ruling anymore in Judah. Now the interesting thing, the reason I point this out, you might be thinking, well, what's this have to do with anything, right? Well, you go to Matthew chapter 1 and you read there in the lineage or the genealogy that traces down to Christ from uh, all the Israelite kings Guess whose ancestor was Christ? Matthew 1 verse 11 lists Jeconiah in that line that ultimately led down to Jesus here on the earth. So what does this tell us? This tells us that if Jesus would have tried to take the literal physical throne of David according to what is promised here, it would not have succeeded, would it? Because that throne, as Jeremiah writes here, according to what the Lord had said, that throne would no longer prosper going forward. No descendant of Jeconiah would ever be able to successfully rule on the throne of David from Judah. So this all shows us that the kingdom is not a physical earthly kingdom. And it was never intended to be. Now, here in Acts chapter 2, Peter is trying to reason with the Jews about some of these things. Verse 29 there, he says, Men and brethren, let me speak freely to you of the patriarch David, that he is both dead and buried, and his tomb is with us to this day. Therefore, being a prophet and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that of the fruit of his body, according to the flesh, he would raise up the Christ to sit on his throne, he, foreseeing this, spoke concerning the resurrection of the Christ, that his soul was not left in Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God has raised up, of which we are all witnesses. Therefore, being exalted to the right hand of God, and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, what promise is he talking about? This promise that was just referenced about the throne being inherited by the Christ. Jesus has realized that, he says. He's received from the Father the promise. And he's poured out this which you now see and hear. So Peter declares to them, Jesus has taken the throne. Now he's not physically sitting there where David sat. But his throne transcends these earthly thrones that we see round about us, that have beginnings and ends. This is a kingdom that is spiritual. This is a kingdom that is going to never be destroyed. And we're going to see that further made plain as we look at some other things. Now, another false premise of this teaching is that Christ's rejection was unexpected. That when God sent Christ here the first time, that the Jews' rejection of him, that, that God didn't see that coming, that that 
thwarted the plans that God had in mind for, again, this earthly empire that Jesus was supposedly to set in motion. And we see time and time again, even in the first part of the book of Acts, that even the disciples of Christ were confused on these things. And they thought once he'd resurrected from the grave that, well, now he's going to restore the glory of Israel. Now all these things are going to be fulfilled. And they still didn't quite understand that this kingdom was not an earthly kingdom. But was Christ's rejection unexpected? We know Isaiah would would disagree with that based on what he prophesied. In Isaiah 53, it's pretty plain that the Messiah was going to be rejected. We refer to this chapter quite frequently when we think about Jesus and the things he suffered, and we always want to show, of course, how that these things were foretold. It further establishes who Jesus truly is as the Son of God. But just to notice a few verses, the first three verses of this chapter, notice who has believed our report and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed. He shall grow up before him as a tender plant, as a root out of dry ground. He has no form or comeliness. When we see him, there is no beauty that we should desire him. Notice he's despised and rejected by men. A man of sorrows, he's acquainted with grief. And we hid, as it were, our faces from him. Again, he was despised, and we did not esteem him. So it was prophesied concerning Christ, concerning what would befall him when he arrived, that it was going to be rejection on the part of humankind. In John 18 and verse 36, Jesus is before Pilate, and notice what he says here. He says, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, he says, my servants would fight so that I should not be delivered to the Jews. But now my kingdom is not from here. If Jesus had come to establish an earthly kingdom, do you really think that even if the Jews had rejected him, that he would have not been able to accomplish that goal? If <laughs> you stop and think about that for a minute. You remember there in the garden when he was arrested in Luke chapter 26, you remember Peter tried to defend him with the sword, and he said, look, I can call legions of angels to come and deliver me from this if, if that was the intention. But they all didn't quite see the, the big picture yet and understand that he had come as the Lamb of God to be a sacrifice for us and to establish a kingdom that can never be destroyed, a kingdom for all mankind. Matthew 10, verse 5. These twelve, we read, Jesus sent out and commanded them and said, Do not go into the way of the Gentiles, do not enter a city of the Samaritans, but rather go to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. And as you go, preach, saying, notice what, what they were to say. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. This kingdom that he came to establish was soon to come, in other words. And we know that wasn't very much time that transpired after these things that all of it came to pass. In Mark 9 and verse 1, he said to them, Assuredly, I say to you that there are some standing here, notice what he says, who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God present with power. This is shortly before he was crucified. And he says, look, some of you who are here alive today, you're going to live to see the kingdom Present with power. Now, when did that happen? What happened in Acts chapter 2, ultimately, when the Holy Spirit came upon the apostles? In Acts 1 and verse 8, notice here again this, this idea is reiterated. Jesus again is speaking. He says, You shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be witnesses to me in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. In the next chapter there, like we said, we see that the Holy Spirit came upon them, that that power was manifested, that it was such that all who were there in the city were drawn to figure out what this commotion was all about, and they heard the gospel preached, and the very first individuals were baptized into the body or the kingdom of Jesus Christ. Colossians chapter 1 
Here, Paul is writing to Christians in Colossae, and notice what he says. He, that is, Jesus Christ, has delivered us from the power of darkness and conveyed us into what? I should say God rather than Christ. But God has delivered us from the power of darkness, conveyed us into, notice, the kingdom of the Son of His love, in whom we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of of our sins. So when we are baptized into Christ, we are translated into this kingdom. Revelation 1, verse 9, John, as he writes there the introduction to his prophetic letter, he says, I, John, both your brother and companion in the tribulation and in what? The kingdom. They were in the kingdom then, and we are today if we are in Christ. And so, Christ's rejection was all part of God's plan. It was not something that was unexpected in any way. And when we understand the nature of the kingdom, it, it becomes very apparent that that is indeed the case. This teaching goes on and says, well, the church is an afterthought. Because Jesus was rejected and ultimately killed, and he couldn't, at that point in history, establish his kingdom like he wanted to, that he set up this church kind of as like a temporary, uh, you know, holding place kingdom, or whatever you want to call it, uh, until he could come back a second time and, I guess, try again, <laughs> or have better luck. So, they will teach this idea that the church is and never was meant to be some, some kind of a, a permanent establishment. Well, is that true? Matthew chapter 16, verse 15, Jesus said to them there, Who do you say that I am? He'd asked them who people said he was, and they'd given different answers. Who do you say that I am? We know what Peter responded there in verse 16. He said, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus said, Blessed are you. For flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I also say to you that you are Peter, and on this rock, on this solid truth, the fact that I am the Christ, the Son of God, I will build my church. So Jesus was pretty confident in why he was there and what he was going to do, wasn't he? Because of who he was, he says, I'm going to build my church. The gates of Hades are not going to prevail against it. My death is not going to stop it because I'm going to rise again, in other words. And notice what he, again, describes the church as, what he calls it in the very next verses. Verse 19, I will give you the keys of what? Of the kingdom. You see how all these things are interconnected? They're all one and the same. So Jesus said, I've come to build my church, the kingdom, which you're going to be given the keys to. In John 12, again, before he was crucified, as he contemplated all he was going to have to suffer, he says, you know, my soul is troubled. And we would all be troubled, wouldn't we, if, if we anticipated being beaten and crucified and mocked. But what shall I say, Jesus asked. Father, save me from this hour. Get me out of here, in other words. And Jesus says, for this purpose, I've come to this hour. This is why I'm here. This is the whole point of what I'm doing. So, Father, glorify your name. Keep your word. Let's see the plan all the way through to completion. In Acts 20, verse 28, we see here the significance of the church. This was not an afterthought. This was the whole thought. As Paul spoke to the Ephesian elders, he said, Take heed to yourselves and all the flock among which the Holy Spirit's made you overseers to shepherd the church of God, which he purchased with his own blood. Jesus shed his blood so that this church, this kingdom, could be established so that we could enter in through him 
and have eternal life. With me over here to the book of Ephesians, chapter 3. Notice a few verses, beginning in verse 8. Paul says to me, who am less than the least of all the saints, this grace was given that I should preach among the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ, to make all see what is the fellowship of the mystery, which from the beginning of the ages has been hidden in God, who created all things through Jesus Christ, to the intent that now the manifold wisdom of God might be made known by the church to the principalities and powers in the heavenly places, according to the eternal purpose, notice that, which he's accomplished in Jesus Christ our Lord, and whom we have boldness to access with confidence through faith in him. This is all the eternal purpose, you see. Everything that played out with Christ and all that he suffered, all that he accomplished, this was the plan from the beginning. It was not an afterthought, as some might suggest. Well, what's another false premise of this teaching? They will say that when Jesus returns, at least initially, that only the saints are going to be raised. All the wicked are going to be left alone, at least for a time, according to this theory. Well, what's the Bible say about that? What did Jesus say about that? John chapter 5, verse 28, he says, Don't marvel at this, for the hour is coming in which all, notice that, who are in the graves will hear his voice and come forth. All doesn't leave anybody out, does it? All means everybody. And it's further made apparent by what he says next. He says, Those who have done good, it will be a resurrection unto life. But those who've done evil, it will be a resurrection of condemnation. So Jesus said, they're all going to be raised at that hour. In Acts 24, we see Paul confirms the same. In verse 15, he says, I have hope in God, which they, referencing the Jews, or certain of them anyway, they themselves also accept that there will be a resurrection of the dead. Notice both of the just and the unjust. This being so, I myself always strive to have a conscience without offense toward God and men. Now, one of the verses, or passages, I should say, that is popular when people are teaching or trying to uh, push the idea of a rapture is what we read here in Matthew 24. And I'd like us to read that and see if we can't figure out what it really is saying. Matthew 24 is an interesting chapter, of course, because uh, there's a lot of things that Jesus says there that at the surface might seem kind of hard to understand. And what's he talking about? Is he talking about the end of time? That doesn't seem to match up with certain other things we read. And when you really dig into it, you come to find that most of the chapter is dealing with the destruction of Jerusalem, which occurred in AD 70. Jesus returned in judgment against the Jews at that time. And much of the prophetic words that he speaks in this chapter uh, were fulfilled at that time. And that's something we see not just exclusive to Matthew 24, it's something that is dealt with heavily in the book of Revelation as well. But we don't have time to get into all that. But towards the end of the chapter, he does talk some about the final day of judgment. Uh, he kind of shifts his attention from this judgment in AD 70 that occurred against Jerusalem, and he starts to talk about that day and hour, referencing the end of time. He says, of that day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, but my Father only. How many times have we heard people say, up oh, the end of time, November 22nd, it's coming, get ready, send me some money. <laughs> I don't understand how that ever worked, but people <laughs> buy into it. But then the day comes and goes and somebody gets rich and everybody else is confused and we'll, then the guy says, well, I miscalculated. It's a couple years from now, right? We've seen that happen over and over again. Jesus says only God knows when that's going to happen. But then he goes on and he says, as the days of Noah were, so also will be the coming of the Son of Man. 
For as in the days before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying, giving in marriage, until the day that Noah entered the ark, and did not know until the flood came and took them all away, so also, he says, will the coming of the Son of Man be. Two men will be in the field. One will be taken and the other left. Two women will be grinding at the mill and one will be taken and the other left. We'll see right there. It's talking about the rapture. You see, the righteous are just going to vanish from the earth. Did we pay attention to what we just read? Who's going to be taken? Who was taken away in the flood? Wasn't the righteous. It was the wicked, wasn't it? We know from other passages, 1 Thessalonians 4 is one, that when Jesus returns, the righteous are going to meet him in the air. But what's going to happen to the rest? Well, they're going to be taken in the sense that they are removed from the presence of God for all eternity. We don't want to be taken. <laughs> we don't want to be in that category. So it's just the opposite of what they want to teach concerning these verses. When you really look at the context and what's being said there, it's it, like we said, it's just the opposite that Jesus is trying to say. Notice in Matthew chapter 13, we find here where Jesus is giving the explanation of the parable of the wheat and the tares. Verse 36 down through verse 43. It says, Jesus sent the multitude away, and he went into the house, and his disciples came to him, and they said, Explain to us the parable of the tares of the field. So he answered and said, He who sows the good seed is the son of man. Field is the world. The good seeds are the sons of the kingdom, but the tares are the sons of the wicked one. The enemy who sowed them is the devil. The harvest is the end of the age, and the reapers are the angels. Therefore, as the tares are gathered and burned in the fire, so it will be at the end of the age. The Son of Man will send out his angels, and they will gather out of his kingdom all things that offend and those who practice lawlessness, and he will cast them into the furnace of fire, and there will be wailing and gnashing of teeth. But then the righteous, he says, will shine forth as the sun in the kingdom of their father, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. Now, after you read what we read there in Matthew 24, and then you come read that, oh, okay, well, that matches up almost exactly, doesn't it? So we can see what Jesus was trying to tell us concerning the end. All will be raised, but only some will be raised unto eternal life. Now, the final thing we're going to consider tonight this false premise, and this is maybe one of the most interesting ones. But they will say that Christ is going to come back and he's going to reign on the earth for a thousand years. Well, where do you find that in the Bible? Have you ever had somebody talk to you about that and you ask them that question? Well, where is that in the Bible? Well, most likely they're going to direct you to Revelation chapter 20. We're going to go there ourselves and see if we can make some sense out of that. But before we get there, I just want to notice a couple things. I had referenced 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 just a moment ago. Here Paul is talking about the end and he's specifically focused in this passage on the righteous. He's trying to give some comfort about, you know, when Jesus comes back, we're going to be with him for all eternity and we should comfort one another with these words. Nowhere in this text, as Paul is describing what's going to happen, does he talk about Jesus setting foot on the earth. He comes back in the clouds, and it describes us meeting him in the air. You notice that? There in verse 17. Those who are alive and remain will be caught up together with them, them being those that were asleep or dead in Christ. They're going to be raised, and we're all going to be with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And thus we shall always be with the Lord. Notice what Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians 15. He's talking here again about the end. How's this going to all play out? 
Now, he's been talking about the resurrection of Christ, and so verse 20, he says, Now Christ is risen from the dead. Despite what people are trying to teach you, that there is no resurrection in all of this, Christ is risen from the dead, he says. He's become the firstfruits of those who've fallen asleep. For since by man came death, Adam, by man also came the resurrection of the dead, as in Adam all die, even so in Christ all shall be made alive, but each one in his own order. Christ was first to rise from the dead. Afterward, it's going to be those who are Christ at his coming. Now, I want us to notice real closely how this text reads. Christ, at his coming, he's going to raise the dead, right? Well, what's going to happen after that? Then comes the end. Doesn't say, then comes the millennial reign of Christ on the earth. No. <laughs> then comes the end. Of what? Of time. Of the physical universe. That's described in 2 Peter 3. Then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom. You see that? The kingdom that is already in existence is going to be delivered to God the Father. As he puts an end to all rule and authority and power. He will reign until he's put all enemies under his feet. The, the last enemy to be destroyed will be death because after that point, there will be no more death. We'll live eternally. So, just noticing these couple of passages, we already see that this idea doesn't hold any water according to what the scriptures teach. But then, what do we make of this thousand years that's talked about in Revelation 20. we got to explain that because otherwise there's still these questions and people say, well, but it still says a thousand years there. <laughs> How do you explain that, right? I hope, my, my hope is, after we conclude the book of Acts, we're going we're gonna to go from the, the kiddie pool down to the deep end and we're going to jump into the book of Revelation in our Wednesday night study. So we're going to get into some of these things in some great detail, I hope. But, since we're talking about these things, I think it's good for us to, to consider this uh, during our lesson. So, Revelation 20, let's read what it says here. Verses 4 through 6. And then we'll see if we can't make some sense of what is being talked about. And we know, of course, the book of Revelation is filled with signs and symbols. It's apocalyptic language. And much of it is not to be taken literally, but is rather figurative and trying to describe fantastic things. So, verse 4 says, I saw thrones and they, uh, and they who sat on them, and judgment was committed to them. And I saw the souls of those who'd been beheaded for their witness to Jesus and for the word of God, who had not worshipped the beast or his image, had not received his mark on their foreheads or on their hands, and they lived and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. But the rest of the dead did not live again until the thousand years were finished. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is he who has part in the first resurrection. Over such, the second death has no power. But they shall be priests of God and of Christ, and they shall reign with him again for this thousand years. Well, what's our first clue as to what is being talked about here? Well, he's talking about this first resurrection. What, what could that be? Do we have any kind of other reference to a, a first resurrection in the rest of Scripture? Sure we do. What about when we're baptized? There's a resurrection there, isn't there? And when you think about a faithful follower of God's life, there's going to be two resurrections, aren't there? There's going to be this first, which is a spiritual, where they die to sin and are resurrected to walk in newness of life through the power of the blood of Christ. This new birth, as is described there in John chapter 3, where Jesus is talking to Nicodemus. You have the reference there, verses 3 through 5. And then, of course, 
If we die physically, there's going to be that second resurrection unto life eternal. So Romans 6, verse 3, let's just read it. Do you not know that as many of us as were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? Therefore, we were buried with him through baptism into death, that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life. So here's the first resurrection. 2 Timothy 2, verse 11 this is a faithful saying, for if we died with him, when do we die with him? We just read it. We die to our sins. We repent. If we die with him, we shall also, notice, live with him. We're going to rise again spiritually, created anew, and live with him. If we endure, we shall also reign with him, he says. Now, coming back to the text, you notice that these who have taken part in this first resurrection are spoken of as being priests of God and of Christ and that they're reigning with him. Do we read about that anywhere else? Sure do. We could go back to the very beginning of the chapter. Verses 4 through 6 in chapter 1. John, as he writes to the seven churches in Asia, he says, Grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come from the seven spirits who are before his throne, from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead, the ruler over all the kings of the earth. So here again we see Jesus is on his throne. He's got authority over all the kings of the earth. To him who loved us and washed us from our sins in his own blood and has made us kings and priests to his God and Father. To him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. There we go. Who's he talking to here? He's talking to Christians. Matthew 19, verse 28. Jesus said to his disciples at that time, he said, Assuredly, I say that in the regeneration, there's only two places in the whole New Testament where that word regeneration is used. The other one's referenced there. It's in Titus 3 and verse 5 where there Paul is talking about the washing of regeneration. In other words, when we are baptized into Christ, when we're cleansed of our sins. In the regeneration, Jesus says, when the Son of Man sits on his throne, you who have followed me will also sit on twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. He says, you're going to reign with me in the regeneration. Well, when we're baptized, we are regenerated. Finally, 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 9 and 10 there. Peter, as he writes to Christians, notice he says, you are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood. So there you go. When are we priests? When we're serving God as followers of his son. When we're in this kingdom. That you may proclaim the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light, who once were not a people, but are now the people of God, who had not obtained mercy, but now have obtained mercy. So, what do we conclude when we put all that together? Well, what's being talked about there in that 20th chapter? He's talking about the, Christ, the Christian age, we might say, the Christian dispensation, the period of time where the saints are victorious with Christ through his blood, living and reigning with him. Again, this is all big picture type stuff, okay? So we're not talking anywhere, you notice nowhere in that chapter did it talk about Jesus coming back to the earth. It didn't talk about him sitting on a throne. It didn't talk about any of those things that they say the passage is describing, does it? And when we look at what it actually is describing there, we can make perfect sense of it when we look at the rest of the Word of God. A thousand is just a, a number that designates total completeness. And we see that. Uh, in, a, in a couple different places. Deuteronomy 7, verse 9, notice here, it says, Therefore know that the Lord your God, He is God, the faithful God, who keeps covenant and mercy 
for a thousand generations with those who love Him and keep His commandments. It's a perfect, complete perfection that describes the faithfulness of God to those who keep His commandments. In Psalm 50, verse 10, Every beast of the forest is mine, God says, and the cattle on a thousand hills. Does that mean there's just literally a thousand hills upon the face of the earth and only the cattle on those hills are the Lord's? No. He's just simply using this number to describe completeness. All the cattle are mine, is what God is saying. And so it's the same number that is used there in Revelation and the same purpose and meaning behind that number when it is used there. I know that's a lot to digest. We've, we've, we've covered a lot of things tonight, and, and I hope that the outline, having that, is, is helpful to you. And again, if any of the content in the PowerPoint is something that you'd like to have to look at later, let me know, and I can get you a copy of that as well. But as we think about this, this idea, and it's been popularized in not just religious teaching, but in books and movies, in fact, there's a series of books and, and movies as well that are titled Left Behind. <laughs> and it's about this idea of a rapture and all these things that they describe in that teaching. But when we look at the scriptures, we see it's, it's, it's not something that the, script, the scriptures teach at all. Now, I'm not going to read the entirety of 2 Peter 3 um, just for the sake of time tonight. I encourage you to read through that. On your own, but just a couple things I want to point out, uh, kind of in paraphrasing what Peter talks about there in that chapter. We know that Peter here is talking about the end of time and what's going to happen to the earth at the end because of the references that he makes in the first part of the chapter. He talks about how people are ignorant or really willfully ignorant, or they've forgotten that the earth that once was was destroyed by water in the flood. People say, well, things are just going on like they always were. Well, no. Do you remember what happened before? Is what Peter's point is. And as he goes on and talks about different things, he gets to the ultimate conclusion of that same earth, the earth that we're on, is likewise reserved for destruction once again, but it's not going to be by water. He says it's reserved for fire. The elements are going to be melted with fervent heat. All the physical universe is going to be done away with, and what will remain is the spiritual, that which we can't see with these physical eyes, but we know exist because of the evidence of them. And he says, what manner of persons ought you to be, understanding that all these things are going to be dissolved, that there is going to be this final day in which we all are judged according to our works. When that day comes, there will be no more chance for repentance. There will be no more chance for change. And so we have to make use of our time and opportunity now. And so tonight, if you're here and you recognize that there is something lacking, that your soul is not right with God, then we would implore you to make that correction that is needed while you have this opportunity. If we can assist you in obedience to the Lord Jesus Christ. If we can pray with you, pray for you, please let those requests be made known by coming up to the front while we stand now and while we sing.